Andrews here at St Balls. We are always keen for the, the wrestling with scripture to be something that we do on Sunday and through the week. Uh, we are working through this series on the book of Jonah at the, at the moment. We've had a lot of questions get texted in and we're really excited to jump into them and wrestle together. Lots going on here. Yeah, Peter, for those who might need a refresher, can you remind us, where are we up to in Jonah? What have we had a look at this last Sunday just gone? Yeah, so so far in Jonah we've had all of the drama. The Lord commissions Jonah to be his prophet, to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to know about that. He runs away. God brings him back. He goes into the water. God saves him through this fish. He gets vomited up onto the shore. And today he's ready to finally do what God asked him to do right back at the start. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches something. Mm. And there's an incredible response. The Ninevites repent en masse, top to bottom, inside and out, and the Lord relents. Yeah, just amazing picture of God's compassion that, you know, he, he, they, this, the Ninevites turn and God turns, there's turning everywhere going on. Yeah, just, yeah, I call it the, the gospel according to Jonah, that, that chapter 3 verse 10, just amazing picture there. Um, we got a lot of questions about that and repentance and all sorts of things, so we're going to dive right in. First one, someone's asked... Uh, I agree that the Bible is real history, but there are lots of genres of literature in the Bible. And some things about Jonah don't seem quite like history. You know, the fish, the fact that Nineveh's three days journey across. Surely no city in the ancient world was actually that big. Also the fact this prophet isn't sent to Judah or Israel, where the other prophets mostly are. So someone's asked, what do you think about the theory that Jonah is less of an historical record and more of a parable? Now, maybe first part of the answer to this is that we had a bit of a chat about this last week. So if you're listening and you didn't get a chance to listen last week... Go back and have a look. I think it was one of the first one or two questions last time, so a bit more there. But, Peter, you wanted to add a couple of things on this one as well. That's right, yeah. So we did talk about this last week. I'm not sure we said particularly clearly that, uh, as this questioner points out rightly, there are different genres in mm. Scripture, and an important part of reading the Bible well, any particular book of the Bible, is to be attentive to what is the genre of this book. Yeah. Now, part of our trouble with reading Jonah is that some of those signals that the book is giving to us about what kind of genre it might be, what kind of story it is, are tricky for us to interpret. So, for example, the size of the city, it is tough to tell what kind of a statement is being made there. Is Mm. it that if you walk nonstop for three days, it takes you that long to get across? Or is it making another kind of a statement? It's hard to tell. Similarly, we shouldn't assume that the flat-out miraculous things that happen in Jonah, the fish, the... Uh, storm, the plant and the worm that we'll meet this week. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't shouldn't assume that if something is miraculous, uh, it means that we're dealing with something which didn't actually happen. Because, of course, we worship the God of miracles, the God who miraculously saved uh, Israel out of Egypt, who miraculously brought Jesus again from the dead. Yeah. So unusual things like miracles are not actually a good signal that we're dealing with parable rather than history. Yeah, I think it's there's a sort of a subtle statement in here. So I think I think I said in my sermon last week, like if you discount Jonah's history because there's miracles in it, I think that's a that's a, a bad argument, really. Because mm-hmm. yeah, lots of miracles in the Bible. You're going to throw out the whole Bible is you know mythical because of that, and some people do, but they're not really Christians anymore at that point. Um, but I don't think that means that there's no other reasons that could suggest that Jonah is something different going on. So. Yeah, you gotta, as you said, you gotta read sensitive. What actually kind of book is this in front of us? Uh, don't discount this history because of the miracles, but there may be other things in the book that might suggest actually, is this something that's meant to be taken as historical? Yeah, there's probably more going on. That's right. And I think where we landed last week, it's worth reiterating 
uh, whether the object of the Book of Jonah is to uh, give a accurate, fact-based, blow-by-blow historical account of some things that happened a long time ago, or to craft a compelling story that teaches us about God and people and God's grace and how people respond to God's grace. Actually, it's the fact that it's God's word that means we take it seriously, not that we can pair it to this or that archaeological detail, mm. but that God spoke these words. That's why we take them seriously. Yeah, helpful. All right, we'll keep going. As we said, yeah, more on that last thing if you want to go back and hear the full story there too. Second question, is the ambiguity in Jonah purposeful or is it because the author doesn't actually know all of the details? Well, it's, I think it's not impossible that some of the ambiguity in Jonah does reflect the fact that our author isn't primarily interested in generating a detailed historical record. Mm. So you notice Jonah sort of teleports directly from the beach with a fish to Nineveh, not much yeah. detail about how he got there. That could be a sign uh, that you know, the book is just interested in other things. However, lots of the ambiguity definitely is purposeful. Yeah, and I think you see plenty of examples of that in the book we just read. I mean, we're going to talk a minute about uh, overthrowing and overturning and things like that. So, yeah, helpful. In fact, that's the very next question. Now I'm looking at my page again. So, question three. Uh, in my translation, someone says, Jonah says, overturned. 40 more days and it will be overturned instead of overthrown. And my faithful source, Google, says overturned can mean something is flipped or changed, like when a court decision is overturned. Could Jonah's preaching of overturned mean that he is saying the ancient city of Nineveh will change and flip from their old ways and repent? So is the prophecy necessarily threatening destruction? Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps we'll say that Google is not most your most reliable guide when it comes to interpreting the Bible's theology. I take it that person's you know, faithful source was kind of quote-unquote Yes, 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 very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but in this case, uh, Dr. Google is onto something because mm. the, um, the Hebrew word that is being used here does have this kind of root meaning of a, a, a turn. This is something that uh, I talked a little bit about on Sunday, and so it can mean a kind of a violent upending, a cataclysm. So in Genesis chapter 19, verse 25, this word overthrown means a violent upending. Mm. Uh, but in Exodus 14, 5, it means uh, a turn in the sense of a change of heart. Yeah. So that ambiguity definitely is, exists, and it's deliberate. It plays into this uh, deliberately cultivated ambiguity that runs through the whole book. What does God want with the people of Nineveh? Does he want to destroy or to relent and show compassion. Mm. Yeah, so you, you kind of get the sense that Jonah, you know, preached that word, and I assume he, you know, wanted the city to be flipped on its head in the sense that Sodom and Gomorrah were, right? Like, he wanted it destroyed, and then you end up finding out, oh, actually, God did overturn it, but, you know, turned over a new leaf sort of thing, and mm. you kind of mm. see this genius, like, the ambiguous word, clearly deliberately ambiguous, and then as you get towards the end, you realise, oh, you know, and, and all of that's exposing what's going on in Jonah's heart, and, you know, we get to that in a big way. Yeah. One way or all. another, our author is a master storyteller. It's just so, yeah, so good. So brilliantly told. Love it. All right, next question. Someone asked, why would the Ninevites believe God's word? Wouldn't Jonah just come across as a crazy person? Why would they recognise the authority and then go on and repent and all the rest of it? Well... I take it that this is part of the way that the story is told. Mm. Why would they? They've got no reason to listen to him. Of course he looks like a crazy person. Why do they respond at all? Because of God's word. If you read through chapter 3, if you just note the number of times of the reference to the word of the Lord, it's the theme of the chapter, and the word of the Lord is powerful. Mm. The prophet is not very impressive. 
maybe his heart's not in it at all, but the word of the Lord does the Lord's work. Yeah, I think the sort of the you know incredibleness of it is meant to make that point, right? Like it's just so stark, like such a you know reluctant guy with such a brief sermon and such a huge you know more than one hundred twenty thousand people kind of converted on the spot. Like I think the author is deliberately saying like the the starkness of that contrast between what you expect to happen and what actually actually happens. Like there's no way that happens apart from the power of the word. So the very fact that it comes across as a crazy person thing, that's exactly the point, right? Like, there's no humanly possible way this would happen, like, unless there's divine power going on. That's what the Word of God does. All right. Uh, on a similar vein, someone's asked that the repentance of Nineveh it seems amazingly quick. Do you think they knew who Jonah was and what had just happened to them? Like, did they know about the whole fish thing? And they're like, oh, it's the fish guy. Like, God does miracles. Like, we should believe this God. Yeah, what's going on there? Yeah, what do you think? Do you think he smelled like fish when he got there? <laughs> I remember there's, you know, occasionally people kind of make the point, oh, maybe Jonah, like, had his skin was, like, freakishly white or something because it had been bleached by the gastric juices inside the stomach of the fish or something. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you go with what the narrative says and what the text is there, and there's just no indication at all in the text that Jonah is recognised or that he tells more of his story. Like, you can't read in all that stuff. It's just, what does the narrative tell us? Well, like, all the narrative tells us is that Jonah goes and he speaks his brief word and they respond. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason for us to think that the Ninevites recognised Jonah or knew anything more about him. I think the point is, again, like we just said, it's the, it's the power of the word is the only thing that brings about that quick repentance. Yes, in chapter 3, the focus is barely on Jonah at all. Mm. He's sort of there, but very quickly. It's the, it's the word of the Lord that is the focus of this chapter. And so it's not something about him, but it's God's word. Yeah, nice. All right, someone asked, is there any interesting historical evidence that shows the result of Nineveh slash Assyria turning to God as a result of Jonah's actions? No, I mean, not really is the answer. Mm. There's, uh, there's a, a bunch of very interesting and suggestive stuff in the historical record at around about this time. So it's a time where all kinds of things are going on in, uh, in Assyria that um, give us some fascinating background. It was tough times in mm. one way or another, which may on a human level help us to understand something about why they might have been predisposed to hear Jonah's word, though ultimately the answer is the same, because God was seeing to the efficacy of his word. Mm. Uh, but there's not really uh, evidence that they, uh, that they really kind of changed their ways in a, in a long-term way. Really before long, they were back to their, back to their wicked ways of aggressive imperialism. Yeah, I mean, I, you probably read more on this than I did, but I, I got the sense that that period, you know, when Jonah's around is sort of the first half of the 700s BC and seems like the archaeological record is a little bit just scant on that time. Like, later Assyria, it seems like we get more that period. There is there is some stuff there, but it seems like there's a little more, you know... I guess the thing about archaeology and history is we only get what survives and there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't survive. Like, you're kind of relying on, you know, someone's cave of scrolls or tablets or whatever to be really, really well-preserved and later stumbled upon and found and... We just don't always know. Um, there are things we find, but it's always incomplete. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, you might be leading to this. It seems like there's some suggestion. One of the kings of Assyria, like, had some, you know, some bad battles going on, and there's kind of a sense of, oh, like, maybe he would have been like, oh, yeah, the gods must be angry with me. And so a guy rocking up and saying, oh, this god is angry. Maybe there's, you know, a particular reason why someone might be more inclined to accept that. I mean, the interesting thing in general is he doesn't even tell you which king it is. It's just the king of Nineveh. No name. Like, if, if the author really wanted you to make the point that 
oh, there's this particular historical situation going on, like, surely it would have given you a little more detail. Like, I think that's, again, part of the point, that everything is, like, trimmed down and you're told the narrative in such a way that the thing that makes the difference is the Word of God, because that's what this chapter is meant to show us. That's the, that's the powerful thing going on. Yeah, that's right. If we do attempt to correlate it with a particular period in history and with the rest of the Bible story in the, the other parts of the Bible that are more interested in the names of kings and the mm. historical record, then you know we'd have to say that what we're looking at here is an event that happens for a single generation in the city. But uh, even in the Bible, the broader Bible story, we see that it, before too long, they're back knocking on the doors of Jerusalem with an army. Yeah. And someone, I mean, next question, good segue. Someone's asked, how come it seems like the Ninevites keep doing bad things post-Jonah? Because they, they don't end up seeming like a changed people. Yes, well, no, they don't really. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, you know, we see, don't we, often in Israel there's repentance and uh, everyone takes it very seriously for, for a time, but sin is deceitful and mm. persistent and it's not so easily shaken off as all that. So we find Israel relapsing into sin and I think we'd have to um, assume that Historically, that's what happened in Nineveh. Yeah. And I think it'd be possible to look at that fact and be like, oh, well, that's somehow... Does that kind of weaken the message of Jonah, in a sense? Like, you know, Jonah's making this point that these people, like, had this genuine display of repentance, which led to this, you know, genuine relenting by God. Is that somehow kind of, you know, nullified if it doesn't prove to be this, you know, ongoing experience? I don't think that's necessarily the point. Like, I think... Jonah is kind of narrowing in on this particular situation. There was this, you know, specific word of destruction coming and this specific time of repentance and this specific act of relenting. And the whole point of that is the word of God calls you to repent. And if you do, God will relent. Like, that's the lesson there. And if you look beyond the end of Jonah, you're now no longer really listening to what Jonah's saying. Like, I think Jonah wants us to look at this this period of, you know, this generation, look at what's going on with them, look how they responded to God. That's the kind of response that um, we're called to, like, examine. And the point is there. It's not nullified by what goes on later, I think. Yeah, and perhaps bigger picture, if we zoom right out to the whole Bible story, well, it, it makes sense to us, doesn't it, that there's no word we can hear and response we can make which will enable us to do away with sin. Our most heartfelt contrition mm. uh, can't put us right. And that's what Israel learned, isn't it? That they needed new hearts, yeah. hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. So ultimately, in that sense, uh, Jonah points us forward to the need of the work of Christ on the cross mm. and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit for there to be a genuine and lasting obedience. Yeah. Crucial. Yeah, thank you. We've tackled a bunch of questions so far that I guess are thinking about the text of Jonah 3 itself. Uh, we're going to move on to a bunch now that are thinking a bit bigger picture, thinking about some of the theological issues, if you like, that come out of this chapter. So someone's... Asked Peter, you referred to the, the Jeremiah passage this morning where God promises that if he warns a nation, he'll destroy them unless they repent. And if they do repent, he'll save them from that destruction. And the question is, can we directly transfer this to us? We deserve destruction, but when we turn back to God and Jesus, we are saved? Or is it not quite as transferable as that? Yeah. What do we make of Jeremiah 18? Yeah, well... You know, I think it, it is transferable. I guess maybe we don't want to think about it being directly transferable because we're not 8th century Ninevites mm. uh, or Israelites of any century, at least. I'm not. I'm, I'm all Gentile. Uh, <laughs> Likewise, yep, me. But we're dealing with this, this. The God who comes to meet us in Jesus Christ is the same God who spoke through Jeremiah, the same God who speaks in Jonah. And so 
he is the same. Mm. He doesn't change. His character is the same. And so the God that we meet in Jesus Christ, the God who is merciful and compassionate and relents from sending destruction, that we meet that same God. And we see really the complete fulfillment, don't we? The, the, the highest and clearest and best representation of who he is as Christ dies on the cross for us and rises to bring new life. So in that sense, yes, mm. that God deals the same with us, but even better because it is the same God. Yeah. And I think, I think this is one of those areas where you really clearly see this kind of um, continuity throughout the Bible. It's like the prophets, this is their kind of, their message, like re- repent is their word, if you like that, turn back. Like that, if you have to sum up the message of the prophets in one word, it's, it's that word. And then you get to the New Testament and you, you know, the gospel is open with John the Baptist and John the Baptist's message is repent. You know, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Well, the prophets did. And now John's there as the last prophet again. And then Jesus rocks up and he says, the time's fulfilled, the king, kingdom of God is at hand, repent, believe in the good news. Like you can see that there's that flow that Jesus comes as the capital P prophet again to call people to turn away from this sin and turn back to God. Like that. So I think it's, yeah. It's not transferable in the sense that you can just pluck out any random verse of the Old Testament and it happens to be true for you. Like, some of them aren't. There's, you know, all sorts of things going on. But I think this is one area where you see that really clear development and the word from Jesus is the sort of the word that Israel heard as well. That really clear Mm. continuity, I think. Yes. All right. Someone's asked, how does predestination fit into the idea that God relents against Nineveh? Isn't God in control of the whole situation and knows the outcome? So isn't he fully aware that Nineveh will repent? Yes. Yes, of course God's aware of that. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, Jonah is aware, as we find out. Mm. This chapter and Jonah was doing his best to, uh, to work against that. So, yes, of course God is in total control. And I think it's quite clear, and you know, we made this point on Sunday, that why has God gone through all this trouble to get this prophet, who obviously doesn't want to be there, all the way to Nineveh to say these words because he's looking for exactly this. He wants to bring about repentance. That's mm. why he brings a preacher with a message there to Nineveh so that they repent, so that they can be spared. Mm. It is God's sovereign purpose, of course. But one of the things that's fascinating to me about this chapter as I read it, Jack, is just the way that God's sovereign work with the Ninevites clearly preserves room for their genuine response. Yeah, so it demands it. Yeah. Mm. So the form of his work toward them is an offering, an invitation, mm. a demand, a call to repentance. And then that, uh, that who knows that we read in verse 9 is, is a real one. There's a moment of, well, it depends on what they do. Yeah. And God's sovereign compassion has made space for their genuine response of repentance and he genuinely responds to that yeah and in a way this whole narrative is crafted to make that point like we shouldn't walk away from a book like this thinking god's grace and mercy is this automatic thing that just gets you know rolled out and god says something's bad's going to happen and then he decides it's not like no the reason it doesn't is because people repent like i think that's the lesson for us as well like you don't presume upon god's grace and just assume that uh, you know god says he's angry but he'll I can't use the language in my talk, you know, he'll simmer down, like, he'll cool off, you know, he, he's, he's going to go soft, because he always does. Like, no, like, if they didn't repent, then judgment would have come. That's what the Bible tells us, and we need to take that seriously. And it also shows us that if you repent, the judgment 
doesn't come. Like, that's that's the point, right? So you hear all that and you think, okay, I must repent. Like, God called me to repent and I must do that. And if I don't, I face judgment. And yes, above that, God has chosen and God decrees and God knows what's going on, but I'm invited into that to respond. I have to respond. That's what the story calls me to. Yeah, that's right. So the book of Jonah really helps us here. Mm. It helps us to see very much that God is sovereignly in control. He provides this and provides that. Obviously, he orchestrates the entire circumstances of the book. But if we think about human beings as pawns on a chessboard, if we have a determinist view of God's sovereignty that you know we're just kind of moved about and we things happen automatically and totally without us, we're just entirely passive, mm. well, we don't have a biblical picture of God's yep. sovereignty. God's sovereignty creates and leaves room for our genuine, responsible human activity. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. All right, we'll keep pressing on. Someone's asked, what's the definition of justice? Because from an earthly perspective, we would usually consider that punishing the wrongdoer, that's justice. Is it just that Jesus takes on the punishment for our sin? Where is the justice in that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about that, Jack? I think this is a, a, like a massively important question. So I spoke a lot about justice in my talk and talked about you know the Assyrians and their reputation for impaling people and flaying skin and that kind of thing. And it's they're the ones who get to turn back and relent and you kind of get to the end of Genesis 3 being like, well, that's great, but hang on, like these people are bad. Like, Is it fair that they get forgiven? And that's kind of, you know... What we're about to find out in Jonah 4, that's a big part of where we're going. Mm. So I guess this matters. And this is, I mean, more broadly, this is the kind of objection that some people out there would level against uh, our kind of way of approaching the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like, we take it as absolutely foundational to our faith that Jesus was punished for our sins, that he took his sins on, sorry, he took my sins on himself so that the punishment that was due to me is what Jesus took. And you look at that and think, well, you know, if justice means that you know, the punishment fits the crime. That doesn't seem fair, right? Because I get scot free and Jesus, the innocent man, is killed like that. You can understand the objection there. Um, and I think it's really crucial. Like, if if God is just kind of, you know, just fudging the numbers, so to speak, like, that's a problem, right? Like, I think we talked about this last week. Um, you get this sense about the Bible, like, God is just. Like, Abraham says, you know, won't the judge of all the earth do what is right? Genesis 18, like, that really, really matters. So if, if, uh, if our salvation is just... Sometimes this objection, it's, it's called like a legal fiction. Like God, you know, reckons us righteous, uh, but we're not really. And Jesus is made to pay the penalty that he didn't really deserve. That seems like a miscarriage of justice to some. The thing that I think means it's not is one of the truths that comes out in the New Testament, which is just so crucial, and that is that of our union with Christ. So our being in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are, you are joined to Jesus, you're with Jesus. So that kind of language is all the way through the New Testament. Really crucial passage on this and how it relates to Jesus' death. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul's talking about this exchange. You know, we often talk about this great exchange that, you know, Jesus who had no sin, God made him to be sin, as in he took on my sin. But it's that in Him, it's, it's in Him we become the righteousness of God. So there's that, that union with Christ. It's, it's only being located in and, and joined to and connected with Jesus that means you can be reckoned righteous. So when Jesus takes my sin and is punished for it, uh, it's just because He's joined to me. Like, in a very real sense, I am there with Jesus as He is punished. And God's justice falls on me in Christ. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of way, when, when I'm counted righteous and God says to me, 
you are in Jesus, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're declared righteous. That's not this legal fiction because I am in Christ. Jesus is righteous and I am therefore kind of bound up with him in his righteousness. If there was no union with Christ, like if I'm just disconnected from Jesus, then yeah, sure, it's, it's this problem of the legal fiction. But the fact that we are just so intimately connected to Jesus that uh, in him we become justified, that's the thing that means that God is totally justified in calling us just. That's, yeah, being connected with Jesus makes all the difference. The offender is punished yeah. in Christ. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Hope that helps. Yeah, I, I really get the way of the objection, and that's why this doctrine of the union with Christ thinks just so crucial. And that's why, you know, every kind of five words in Paul's letters, he's talking about being in Christ. Like, it, it's clearly very important to him. Um, another kind of similar question on this, we'll, we'll keep going. Someone says, thanks, Peter, for preaching on Jonah 3. Uh, how do we reconcile God's compassion for sinful nations and justice for those who suffered under these nations? Yeah, I think it is quite a similar question, and it's a good question. Mm. It's the right question. It's the question we have to ask, because what about what about all those poor Syrians who were, who were, who were flayed and impaled? Does yeah. God, you know, just a, a little bit of sackcloth and, oh, don't worry about that stuff? No. And God is famous for, in the Bible, that he will not acquit the guilty. Mm. That he will bring justice on the wrongdoer and this is why what jesus does at the cross is so crucial and and paul really steers directly at this question in romans chapter 3 about the way that what jesus did on the cross uh, actually is the final answer to well how can god be just Mm -hmm. so we read in romans chapter 3 verse 25 god presented christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. Now, why did he do it like that? Why was there death? Why was there justice? Why was there punishment? Why was there blood? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He didn't punish the Ninevites for their flayings and impalings. Mm. And if that doesn't get dealt with, then God is not a just God. Yeah. But God demonstrates his justice by punishing sin, the sin of the Ninevites, my sin, your sin, in Christ, at the cross. He did it to demonstrate his justice, his righteousness, at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God maintains his righteous judgment, his punishment of sin, his standing up for the oppressed and slain and the tortured, and yet, he sets free the sinner because of what Christ does on the cross. Yeah. So we often talk about, you know, the cross is where justice and mercy meet and where truth kisses faithfulness, whatever the psalm says. And that, that's why, right? Yeah. I think God as the just justifier is the wonderful picture you get out of that, that he does what's right and he makes us right. And the only way those could possibly work together is if Christ dies and we die in him. Yeah. I love how it all comes together. I think it's a beautiful way that you see yeah, justice and mercy come together at the cross. It's great. Thank you for the question. Yeah, really good one. All right, to bring us home, we've got a number of questions teasing out some of the implications of what we've seen in Jonah 3. Uh, someone, first of all, this kind of goes back to Jonah 1 in a way, someone's asked, again, thoughts on the importance of drawing lots in the Bible. Uh, we talked about this a little last week, but the new thing here is someone's asked, how applicable is that for application nowadays? Should we still be casting lots when we want to make decisions? One of my mates is kind of renowned for, like, just loves to flip a coin. Like anytime there's a 
admittedly minor decision to be made. He'll pull up the coin and kind of, quote unquote, you know, let God decide. So it's, you know, it's getting late at the party. Like, is it time to go home now? And flip the coin. Like, all right, heads, all right, I'm going. See you guys. Like, is that right? Yeah, I got to make it. He, he does it all the time. Um, there you go. Yeah, this isn't meant to be a public rebuke or anything, but um, yeah, what do you what do you make of that for us today? Well, maybe it is public rebuke time. <laughs> no, not really. Not yeah. really. Um, well, I think. Obviously, this is not something we're told. There's not a prohibition on uh, on drawing lots for mm. Christians. The uh, Israelites are encouraged to do it. Christians are neither encouraged nor discouraged. However, the very last time in the Bible story that we see this happening is with the selection of Matthias as the replacement, uh, the replacement apostle for Judas the betrayer. And this is done. Uh, they pray to God and they cast lots to see who ought to take his place. In the very next chapter... The Spirit is given. Mm. And I think there's something important in that sequence, that God's leading and guiding of his people doesn't happen via lots any time that we're told of after the gift of the Spirit who enables us to discern the mind of Christ, to see the way forward. So my hunch is that there's something there that perhaps Christians uh, are supposed to be led by the Spirit, and this is the way that God leads us, rather than providing uh, divine heads and tails. Yeah, it's interesting, as you go on in Acts, you then see, you know, you get to Acts 15, and the church are wrestling with, oh, Jews and Gentiles, like, should we, you know, we have a decision to make, should we make Gentiles obey the law? And it, like at that point, you're like, well, let's just get out the lots and see what God says. Like, no, like, they get the church together, and the apostles together kind of reason this through, and mm. think about uh, God's word, and what it means to be in Christ, and sort of by the lens of the gospel, they come to this common mind and make a decision. And again, I think you see, yeah, the Spirit working through them to work out the, the decision without using the old covenant, lots kind of methodology. So yeah, I think there is definitely something in that. So I think for us today, I think that, yeah, I don't think we have this particular call to cast lots. Uh, and for us, as we seek to make decisions and go about our days and our lives, we're called to come to the Word and view things in the lens of the gospel and think about what's going to glorify God. Yeah, we, we're given these all sorts of gospel-shaped things that God's Spirit uses in us to help us make those decisions. So I don't think we we have to flip the coin, so to speak. Yeah, so if you want to know whether to leave the party, maybe just pay attention to uh, the clock <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah, good call. All right, next one. Uh, someone's asked, what's the place of the public showing of contrition today? Especially in light of Jesus' instruction about Fasting in Matthew chapter 6. I thought there's multiple things you could say about that, so probably get to flick open to Matthew chapter 6. Um, yeah, what do you make of this, Peter? Yes, well, I mean, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, you know, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Uh, so Jesus is taking aim at... Uh, not at the practice of fasting, but sort of the practice of really letting, making very sure that everybody else knows mm. that you're doing it. So this kind of very performative show of religiosity, uh, which um, you know Jesus identifies with the kind of hypocrisy that um, he's he's so dead against in the Gospels. He says, "Well, don't put on a show. Uh, just God sees what's really going on." Mm. So the idea of public and performative and, and sort of fake. Uh, shows of contrition seems to be well out of step with what Jesus says there. But do you think there's any kind of positive role for it? Yeah, I think so. I think in part, uh, this is something that we try to do in our church life. So when we come together and we corporately 
pray prayers of confession as we come to God. I think that's the kind of thing that's going on here. Together we we have uh, a set of words that helps us to lament and grieve and say sorry to God for our sins and ask Him to forgive us and ask Him to help us walk in the new life we have in Christ. And I think done well, that is a public display of contrition. I think for many of us it can be something that's just, oh, there's some words on the slide and I'm going to say them because that's what we do and you just sort of rattle them off. And I think that that's you know, easy enough for us to do, but one of the things that I'm keen for us to, I guess, grow in as a church is to take those moments seriously and feel them and feel the weight of, oh, our, our sins are, you know, we, we grieve the Spirit and it's, you know, there, there should be a kind of lament aspect of that as we come to God and then joy as we, you know, remind ourselves of the forgiveness we have in Christ, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's one example where I think we do kind of have that, that public show of contrition. You know, there's, there's no sackcloth and ashes there, but that form of words I think is meant to kind of be this expression of grief over our sin. That's right. So it's a part of our, we don't talk a lot about our liturgical heritage as Anglicans, but uh, our forebears thought that it was important that when we gather, we throw ourselves on God's mercy Mm. and remind ourselves that we live by God's mercy, not because of our own religious excellence, uh, but because God is merciful to those who turn to him in contrition. Yeah. Yeah. Great question there. All right, next one. What is the role of a nation or city-wide call for repentance? I guess someone's asking today, should we be calling down, you know, divine judgment on Sydney and calling Sydney to repent in that kind of way that Jen does? Well, I mean, I think if God commissions you to go and do that, you should do that. Don't hop a ship. But Yeah, uh, you don't want to end up in a fish. Yeah. <laughs> However, I mean, I personally have not been commissioned to preach judgment to this city or that. Mm. And I mean, do you expect to? I think that's the question that's worth considering as well. I mean, Jonah operating in this world where Old Testament, Old Covenant, Israel as a nation, there is this very national sense of what's going on, you know, confronting the other nations, going to Nineveh as the capital city of the nation of Assyria. Um, yeah, for us today, uh, in Christ, the, the kind of nationalistic element of Old Covenant life is one of the things that it no longer applies to us. In, in Christ, it's, you know, there is no... Jew or Gentile, you know, Scythian, Barbarian. Um, The gospel is something that cuts across our national categories uh, and there are people under every nation in heaven, every tribe and language and tongue are the ones who are going to be gathered around the throne in in Revelation 7. So I think in that sense we we don't expect to have that same sort of, oh, here's the particular city that's now going to be God's city in the way that you maybe sometimes see in the Old Testament. That's right. And, you know, the message of the gospel uh, is that God calls all people everywhere to repent. Mm. And he's given proof of that by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Yeah, And so the call is on every nation and every city and people everywhere to repent, not uh, as uh, members of uh, Honduras or, you know, <laughs> or citizens of Honduras or this mm. or that, but because uh, Christ is the roar of the world at the right hand of God and we must all bow the knee to his reign. Yeah. So that's some balls. I guess in a sense we do have a particular call. We you know, we call Carlingford and North Rocks to repent. That's that's what we do. I mean not because we have this specific word from God that that is our commission, but because we're part of a network of churches in the Anglican Church of Australia that you know, we sort of for strategic reasons we parcel up our city into different spots and like this is the spot that we as a team are kind of responsible to seek to reach with the gospel. So yeah, we, if you're there listening and coming from North Rocks, we're calling you to repent in the context of the gospel which calls every person under earth, under under heaven, across the earth, to repent. Yeah. 
Yes. That makes sense. Cool. All right. Uh, with repentance, Jack said that to come to God, you need to repent. And I stand by it. Uh, question. Does that mean that Christians don't need to repent after initial repentance of their sin? Um, yeah, I, oh, this question is addressed to me, so I can answer it. Hey, um, I, I'd like to give this person the benefit of the doubt, and this te- maybe this was texted in early, because I hope that you heard loud and clear I like, went, went on to say that repentance is both the initial call of the gospel, so the first time you come to Christ, repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and then the thing that the gospel continues to tell you to do as a Christian is to repent and to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. Uh, and I, I quoted Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformer who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, and one of his famous lines, it's, you know, he's the guy who nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in Germany, and the first one of those was uh, when Jesus said, repent, he will, the whole life of the Christian to be one of repentance. So it's not a one-time deal. Uh, you repent, you turn to Christ, and then sin, we know, has this ongoing power and presence in the Christian life, and we continue to fall short of God's standards and we stumble back into sin and what do you do then? Again, you repent and you turn from your sin and you turn back to Jesus and you continue to turn away from this world and turn to Christ. So yeah, absolutely, whole life, always, always repenting, absolutely. Now, someone else is asking the question that, I mean, more questions begin this, which are really great. So Peter, someone's texted, uh, I know I can never be free from sin this side of heaven. So how can I achieve true repentance? Won't I always be a sinner? in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. And we have this sense, don't we? Uh, we know it from our experience, but you know, we know it from Scripture that uh, while we are in the flesh, uh, we are still um, subject to temptation and mm. the weakness of the flesh and that sin remains with us, that we don't achieve, achieve sinless perfection this side of God's renewal of all things, and us included. It's one of the things that we wait and groan for, to be uh, released from sin, from sin's uh, active presence in our lives. Mm. Uh, and so, similarly to you know what we just said, it means that our life, uh, true repentance, will mean a consistent turning away. It won't be a, a one-time, oh, well, I'm, I'm done with sin now, uh, it's something that we'll be, we need to be doing again and again. And uh, again, this is one of the reasons that our Anglican forebears made this a part of their church gatherings. Every mm. time they got together, they would repent and seek God's mercy because yeah. they knew that sin clings so closely and we must be continually turning away for it and continually seeking God's mercy. Yeah. I think that, I mean, just to add something, yeah. I mean, the, the formulation of this question, I know I can never be free from sin... I think I want to take a little bit of issue with the way of putting that. And I think this is important. Like, in a sense, in a sense, if you're a Christian, you are free from sin in a very important sense that the power of sin as your master has been broken. I mean, that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 8. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Like, in a very real sense, we are liberated from sin. No longer, we're no longer bound to be kind of slaves to sin. That's the uh, Roman 6 language as well. We have a new master. We're slaves to Christ now. And yet, with that said, everything else you said is still true, that we still have the ongoing presence of sin. But I think that that language, you know, I can never be free from sin. I think we can sort of underestimate the the power of the Spirit, as Romans 8 goes on to talk about. Like, you know, you're no longer in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. You 
have the capacity to, to grow and to grow to please God. Like, the, the Spirit can actually do that. Like, I don't think we want to be so kind of pessimistic, like, oh, I'm just trapped in sin and I'm always going to be as sinful as I am now. Like, I think the point of Romans is that, no, like, you have been set free. And it's still a fight. You still got to put sin to death, but it's possible now. It's actually possible to put sin to death because of what the Spirit does in us. Another question digging into this, though, someone's asked, uh, can you speak to how continued repentance fits with assurance? And I guess maybe to unpack that, yeah, if I'm continually realizing I'm a sinner, oh, oh, I've stuffed up again, I've got to turn back. Like, how can I ever know that I'm, you know, right with God? Isn't it meant to be kind of easier than that? Yeah, I think one of the the potential weaknesses of the idea that we must always be repenting is if we have the idea of, you know, I'm in... Uh, I realize that I've done the wrong thing and I repent and things are okay between me and God for a while. I'm in a state of grace, but then I sin again and I need to repent again. Mm. And I'm flicking backwards and forwards. Soon, for a little while after I've repented, I, I'm, I'm okay with God. But then, you know, soon I sin and again I'm away. Yeah, you fall uh, from grace and got to get back in. Yeah, That's right. And there's mm. no assurance in that, is there? Because uh, sin clings so closely and it's with us continually. So if we think about repentance in in that way, then it doesn't fit with assurance. Mm. But of course, we have to be thinking, as as you've said, that all of Christian life is repentance. We're continually turning back to God. Though uh, sin remains with us, Jesus has dealt decisively with the penalty for our sin. If we've repented and come to him uh, in faith, seeking forgiveness we have assurance of forgiveness and assurance of salvation, not based on our ongoing performance, but based on what Jesus did on the cross. Mm. And it's as we continue to turn away from sin and back to Jesus, we continue to throw ourselves on God's mercy and find God's mercy because he is the merciful God. That's how our assurance is continually renewed as we look away from ourselves and our performance, as we despair of what we could achieve in salvation and throw ourselves on what Christ has achieved for us. That's how continually repenting continually brings assurance to us. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of putting it, like, you know, renewing assurance. I think that with some of we hear that word assurance and think it's meant to be, like, this kind of automatic robotic thing. Like, I've sort of prayed the prayer once, I've repented. I'm now, like, kind of just in this state of um, I'm good, I'm secure. Now, whatever happens, I'm going to be fine. And so the idea that I have to keep repenting sort of, kind of bucks against that like oh you mean maybe sometimes i won't feel like i'm fine i don't think the bible gives us the expectation that it is meant to be this automatic robotic thing i think that we never graduate from that sense of sort of despair in ourselves and our utter inability to please god we're always there and yet we're also always driven back to christ and always kind of clinging on to him for mercy so it's an assurance that is never automatic and robotic and it's, it's an assurance that's always just like desperately clinging to the grace of God because you know that's the only place where we can find forgiveness and that's how it's meant to be I think that it is meant to be this sort of um, yeah I mean everything you said is so true it's not like a back and forth like we're not in and out it's just that we're we're always kind of you know kneeling at the foot of the cross like asking for mercy knowing that we haven't got it in ourselves rather than that sort of robotic kind of mode I don't know if that makes sense but yeah. Yeah. I mean, perhaps objective and subjective is one way to think mm. about it. We, uh, we, when we come to Christ in repentance, we objectively are assured. If we you know, cast our burden on Him, you know, mm. cast our sin on Him, and taken His yoke on ourselves, and yeah. have been forgiven, we are objectively we are assured. Um, however, 
you know, subjectively, uh, we can uh, renew our assurance, I think, by, uh, again, repenting you know, when we discover the sin within us. Uh, we have the experience as we go on in our Christian life of discovering you know, sin in, in new ways that we didn't even know. We think you've repented of sin and then, oh, look, you know, still this behavior persists or this attitude I didn't even realize, but I'm doing that. But we can continue to repent of those mm-hmm. things as sin keeps rearing its head. We can yeah. continue and keep experiencing the assurance, no, sin is in me. I am continuing to be a sinner, but I'm continuing to turn to Jesus for grace. I know that he is the reason I'm okay with God, not me. And then I am subjectively assured again that it's not me because there is no assurance there, yeah. but it's all in him. Yeah, yeah. I can quote Martin Luther again because he just had so many good things to say on this kind of thing. It's, you know, his, his whole spiritual life is wrestling with this question. Mm-hmm. In a way. He, he said the Christian life is one of um, always a sinner, always repenting, always righteous. And I think that's really crucial. Like, you never kind of graduate from, you know, you're going to be wrestling with sin and you're going to be always repenting, but that, that never means that you're no longer, you know, you're suddenly unjustified. No, like in Christ, you are righteous. You've been declared righteous even as you continue to sin and turn back from that all the way through. That's right. It's so helpful. I mean, Martin Luther really helps us to see that the Christian life isn't a matter of, you know, you get get it sorted and then kind of coast from there. Mm. It's a struggle. It's a a battle. You're locked in a battle with the flesh. Uh, Martin Luther wants you to know you're locked in a battle with the devil, Mm. but that God is powerful, that Jesus Christ is the mighty man, and that through many struggles and much drama we can be assured that we will reach the end in his strength yeah so good all right final question to bring us home someone's like really good question to finish with how does one repent of their sinful thoughts with thoughts that just pop into your head it's hard to stop Uh, to add i find sinful thoughts pop into my mind Uh, i'm disheartened that i think those things but i don't know how to repent and stop these thoughts with action it's you know you don't do it that's repenting but how does one do that with thoughts such a great question and you can really you know really identify with this yeah. so um you know you you might uh repent as a christian you might repent of uh say swearing you know, stop using you know my words to tear others down and to, to say horrible things but i might have horrible thoughts about people persist in my mind and i'm not mm. acting on those i'm not being violent in my actions or in my words but in my thoughts, I think, oh, everyone, oh you, you deserve... And that thought is just there. So I mm. think it's something we can really identify with as part of this process of discovering that sin runs very deep yeah. in us. Mm. What do you think about... Oh, again, totally, <laughs> totally relate. And I think in some ways, the many of our experiences are that the, the sort of... The external behavior things in my life, they're the things that... Um, many of them, you know, ongoing battles, but... You know, if you were a thief and you stop stealing, like, you know, the action's one thing, but then maybe you're a kleptomaniac and you still want to, and the other thought life is always going to persist. And I think, um, sorry, I was going somewhere with that. Um, or you can coveting, <laughs> coveting exactly. things that aren't yeah, yours, yeah. lusting after stuff that you don't have. Yeah, and the thought life sins, is, you know, you, you suddenly you're doing really good things, and now you kind of turn to Jesus, and you're serving a church, and you're loving other people, and then you suddenly realize, oh, actually, even those things I'm doing, I'm doing because I just actually really want to please that other person and not God and mm. you know sometimes suddenly you're doing good and yet now there's new kind of thoughts in because you know like yeah I just, Pride, yeah. Uh, depravity just runs so deep and again part of the answer is that just 
reminds you that the struggle with sin is lifelong. And so again, you, you turn back. And I think to repent of thought life and that, it's, you know, you, you repudiate the thought and say, no, that's wrong. Like, I, Lord, I'm sorry that I thought that. I don't want to think like that. Please change my mind. You just keep bringing it back to Jesus and keep repenting of it. I think it's, I mean, I don't think we have no control over our thoughts. Like, I, I get what you mean. Like, you know, thoughts jump into our head. And I think at that point, it's, you know, when the thought comes, what do you do with that? Do you kind of lean into it and kind of fantasize it or do you immediately you know kind of shut it down like i want this out of my mind like lord take it away i think part of the answer has got to be what do you feed your mind with because i think the things that we think you know we we fill our minds with all sorts of things and sometimes our thoughts reflect the the diet that our brain chews on if you like so if you know what your mind is filled with is the 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 violent or kind of salacious netflix series that you're binging then yeah that's going to affect your thought life right i think Paul gives us this really beautiful um, command in Philippians 4 where he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I think if your mind is filled with good things and filled with you know the goodness of Jesus and all sorts of other beautiful things about the Lord besides, I think that's the kind of thing that might start to shape your thought life in more godly directions. Mm. yeah anything to, to add I think that's a great place to finish great place to finish as we wrap up we will say one more thing which is next week uh, we're coming to Jonah chapter 4 what have we got to look forward to on Sunday Jonah chapter 4 in some ways it's really the, the punchline to the whole book mm. Jonah stays surprising right to the end there's a couple more twists still to come but really this is the point at which uh, God's word really gets very sharp very pointy and really asks the question if we've received compassion are we prepared to show compassion yeah wonderful finish of the book really excited for it we will see you then god willing bye for now goodbye